Hello and welcome to the Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, or use AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I'm your host, Andrei Karenkov, a PhD candidate at the Stanford Vision and Learning Lab. In this episode, I'm excited to be interviewing a fellow PhD student at the Stanford, Rishi Bomasani. Rishi is a second-year PhD student in the CS department at Stanford, where he's advised by Percy Liang and Jen Jarofsky. His research focuses on understanding AI systems and their social impact, as well as using NLP to further scientific inquiry. Over the past year, he helped build and organize the Stanford Center for Research on Foundation Models, or CRFM, which has garnered quite a bit of discussion in the AI community. So I'm excited to be talking about this and more with Rishi. Uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, great to be here. Yeah, very excited to do this. Great. Well, uh, let's jump in. And as we always do, before we get into what you're doing right now, we want to look back and ask, uh, how did you first get into doing research uh, in AI? And also, you know, what made you interested in AI in the first place? Yeah, so I did my... I think I got interested in research during my undergrad. So I did my undergrad at Cornell. And initially, I started in pure math. Um, and I think it was actually one of my friends, uh, Linus, Linus Sadia Brada, who's now a PhD student at UChicago in pure math, who sort of introduced me to research. So he was very interested in pure math research. And I was maybe not interested in pure math specifically at, at the research level, but was just kind of struck by his curiosity. So I reached out to a faculty in computer science, uh, Clara Cardi, um, who, who is an NLP researcher. And uh, over time, I guess what she suggested was to read the sort of standard NLP textbook, which is Chris Manning's uh, textbook on NLP, I think that was the first time I ever read a textbook or like, like legitimately um, and sat in the library for the first time and just like read it for some reason. Um, and, and yeah, I can't necessarily explain why I did that, but um, it was interesting. Uh, and so Claire suggested I stay for the summer after my freshman year and do research with one of her PhD students. Um, and as a freshman who had nothing better to do, I, I agreed. Um, uh, and so that's how it got started. So I started in NLP research back then. Um, and then throughout my undergrad, I continued doing NLP with Claire on a variety of different topics. But that was a start. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, it's always interesting how there's this initial spark. I think for me, I remember very concretely, like sitting for one of the final lectures in intro to AI at Georgia Tech. And the teacher at that time, Andrea Tomas, you know, as this was one of the final ones, didn't cover any like topic. She just went over her own research. I was like, oh, wow, <laughs> this is pretty interesting. And that led me to, to go into uh, robotics research. So yeah, cool story. Uh, so if I understand correctly, you then went into doing your master's also at Cornell and then wound up at Stanford, right? Yes, that's correct. So, so yeah, I guess I, I graduated in three years at Cornell, but I didn't really want to leave. So I stayed for a fourth year to do a master's. Um, and yeah, I think that was a pretty good experience for, um, kind of having more dedicated time to do research and therefore having a you know, better approximation of what a PhD would be. 
uh, mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's something I generally recommend. I did both undergrad and masters, and it's good to come into a PhD ready and knowing what's coming, because <laughs> otherwise it would be pretty painful. Um, so this was, I guess, around you know 2017, 2018, where deep learning has already, so to speak, overtaking NLP, right? And I assume you were kind of following all of these developments at that point. Yes, that's right. So I think in 2017, the summer 2017 is when I started. Um, so I, I worked on, I didn't necessarily work on attention back then, but, or, well, I guess I worked on, on some forms of attention uh, with the PhD student I was working with. And, and coincidentally at the time is exactly when the attention all you need paper was published. Um, and so I, I think it was striking to me how quickly people seem to realize that this paper was very important, um, mm-hmm. at least at Cornell, uh, because, you know, lots of papers are published and, you know, in the moment, lots of them seem promising, but, you know, many of them don't pan out necessarily. Uh, but it was pretty quick to see the shift. And so in NLP, at least, you know, we had lots of papers about like uh, LSTMs with attention and now we had self-attention and now we had transformers. Um, and so I think, for the majority of my undergrad, that was definitely the, the trend. And then I guess Bert and Elmo were published maybe a year or so later. Um, and it was kind of interesting to see that there was just like this wave of papers that were all like, we take Bert and apply it to task X and, and it's great. Uh, mm-hmm. And we repeat that for lots of tasks. Um, uh, so I think that was interesting i guess the surprising thing though maybe is i think for my own research at that time i basically did nothing on the modeling side um so i think yeah and i guess it'll be sort of the opposite of some of the stuff we'll talk about later but uh, yeah throughout my undergrad all of the work i did was never used a gpu and (laughs) um that was a sort of Initially, it was I didn't have access to GPUs, but eventually it was just sort of a challenge I, I posed to myself. But um, yeah, I, I think it was interesting to see how the field kind of changed right as I was entering it. Um, and yeah, I, I you know I, I would say for example, it was never in the field pre deep learning, and so yeah. it's interesting how that kind of warps your perspective. Yeah, I also remember taking the intro to AI. I think, and it was around 2013, 2014. And I remember like while you're we talking about neural networks being like, what is deep learning? How does this compare to deep learning? Is deep learning the same thing, you know, uh, when it was just being established? Uh, so in some sense, it's, I think for many junior researchers, it's interesting timing to have come in, you know, in this period of dramatic change. So with you having come into research from this more math uh background. Uh, what do you start your focus on? What could you even do research on about GPUs? And then I guess, um, yeah, how, how did your focus shift uh, throughout your undergrad and master's? Yeah, so I think the first, I, I honestly don't understand what Claire was thinking when she suggested this, but the first project we worked on was this like very challenging structured prediction problem of um, Basically, there's a task in NLP called information extraction, which is where you have text and you you try to identify all of the important kind of entities and relations in the text. Um, and 
basically, if, if you want to do well, you, you kind of need to jointly reason about both the entities and relations while trying to identify both of them. Uh, and so this creates like a uh, kind of annoying combinatorial structure to, to deal with, um, which is part of the reason we were thinking about attention as, as a way to kind of model these relationships. Um, and yeah, so that was where we started. I think coming in with a math background, especially back then, I think what I was curious about is, you know, we, we saw these like clear improvements from using pre-trained word embeddings. And at the time, and I guess even still now, there wasn't any real theory behind pre-trained word embeddings that, like, you know, I found super satisfying. Um, right. So I remember asking Claire, like, oh, you know, the embedding dimension for all of these is 300. Why is it 300? Is there like <laughs> some kind of like latent manifold that you know, somehow magically is 300 dimensional for language, for English at least. Um, and she had no idea. So, so that was that. But yeah, I remember like coming in with a math background, it, it did feel dissatisfying that we didn't have strong theoretical understanding of the things we were using. Um, and I think that's still a, tr a, tr a trend we still see with a lot of deep learning stuff. Like obviously there's a great amount of work on theory of deep learning from people like Tengu and... Sanjeev Aurora and so on. But um, yeah, there's still a lot to be understood on that front. Um, but yeah. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but I guess eventually you uh, had to get your hands dirty and yeah. <laughs> you know, go yeah. forward. So yeah, yeah I think uh, it, it seems like, you know, as you said, you started around with time attention, started getting big and um, some of your early research seems to be uh, kind of related to that. So kind of secondly, one of the first things you published or presented was towards understanding position embeddings, right? Uh, so yeah, how did that come about? What was just the process there? Yeah, so that was a, that was a short, it was a short, like kind of two page abstract. Um, and yeah, I think at the time, as a person who'd, who'd entered the field through NLP and, and thought about language, um, you know, the, the concept of attention is a bit strange compared to LSTMs, which, you know, sort of naturally model the sequential structure of, of sentences, let's say. Um, and attention is kind of more of like a set encoding method that, you know, uses the position of uh, embedding to, to retain some information about word order. Um, and so I had a kind of you know, and, and if you remove the position embedding, then you have a bag of words model, which, you know, at least historically was not you know, that great for tasks that involve syntax or word order, things like that. So um, what I was interested in was just, you know, let's look at the position embeddings for all these models. So I think another important thing that happened then was Hugging Face sort of came into existence and they had the Transformers library, which had all of these, you know, pre-trained models in the same you know, standardized format, which was quite useful. And so you could just take the position embedding matrices from all of these different models and, and kind of compare them. And it wasn't clear to me what I was looking for. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily say that the results we had were particularly compelling, but, uh, you know, one suspicion I had is, you know, in these bi-directional models like BERT versus these unidirectional ones like GPT-2 at the time, um, uh, or maybe even the original GPT, I don't remember, but uh, there, you expect something to be different in the position embeddings, right? Because they, they you know, fundamentally see different parts of the sentence. Um, 
And indeed, you know, the, there's, it, it's pretty hard to create a, like, if you say visualize the embeddings, you see that the geometry of the space is very different for the two. Um, and at the time, I guess, especially if you have this GPU constraint, um, I, I didn't necessarily explain why the geometry is different, but I think that was just something I was curious about. And I was just sort of hoping that maybe the field would examine it because it seemed quite important. If you really believe language depends on order, which certainly you can show it does, uh, then how we do this kind of embedding matters um, or should matter. Um, I think we it took a while for that to manifest. I think maybe in the past year, we've really seen work on position embeddings that has influenced the actual behavior of systems significantly. Um, but we've also seen work like showing that BERT is, is roughly a bag of words model, just a really, really good one. Um, oh. And it's kind of insensitive to various types of permutations of sentences, um, uh, which is, yeah, I think it's a really mixed bag because in other aspects, BERT is pretty good at syntax uh, and things like that, which depend on order, but simultaneously, you know, is sort of permutation invariant, or at least for some class of permutations is invariant. Um, so yeah, I think this question of order and in and, and language, I think is pretty important and figuring out how we model it is sort of relatedly quite important. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think I, I can agree with you that transformers seem certainly less intuitive, you know, a recurrent neural net, you know, you feed in one word at a time, it processes one word at a time, at least in the unidirectional model. And, you know, that's intuitive. Whereas transformers, you know, you look at the whole sentence at once and you need to add on these position things. And I think, yeah, it's interesting how positional embeddings are similar to a lot of stuff in deep learning, where initially it's sort of just ad hoc, you know, people came up with ways of doing it. I forget it was like sine, sine, cosine type of stuff. And then eventually, as you said, you know, people got around to looking, taking a deeper look and maybe understanding how to do it properly. And actually on that note, as you said, that bird doesn't care about ordering, uh, another work you had that is related, uh, is long distance dependencies don't have to be long, uh, simplifying through provably optimal permutations, which uh, taking a look at it, you know, I wasn't aware of this permutation thing, so I found it interesting. Uh, yeah, so did that sort of follow up on the position stuff or how did that happen? Yeah, I think I think that was probably my kind of favorite work from when I was an undergrad. Um, and, you know, it kind of came from this observation that began with LSTMs and continued with Transformers that you know, LSTMs by even in their name suggest that they're good at modeling long distance dependencies, but in practice, you know, as dependency length becomes increasingly long, you know, modeling performance degrades. Um, and, you know, we can, you can design all kinds of attention mechanisms and so on that are trying to combat this. But the kind of key idea I had was, you know, as, as computer scientists building AI systems, you're not required by any any law or anything to use the original sentence as the input to your model. And in particular, you know, if you have some way of identifying important dependencies in a sentence, you could just permute the sentence so that the things that are related are, are, are just literally closer together, right? Um, so there's two pieces there of, of how do you get the dependencies? Well, I guess, fortunately, 
linguists have, have studied the task of or have built dependency grammars, which you can then use to do dependency parsing. Um, and then how do you find these permutations? Well, it turns out that you can, there's like a, and actually maybe this pulls on some of my math background, um, the, you, you can cast this problem as a sort of well-studied problem in algorithms and uh, combinatorial optimization. Uh, and then you can actually compute the um, permutations because usually, you know, computing the an optimal permutation is going to be some combinatorial thing that you don't want to do. Uh, but fortunately for these objectives, you can do it in actually astonishingly linear time, um, which is, uh, yeah, when I, yeah, it was very surprising that you could do it in linear time. Um, mm. But yeah, so, so you get these sentences that are permuted and to humans look like gibberish. Um, uh, and, and it's important to note that like, while you bring some dependencies closer together, like other things might get put arbitrarily far apart or like other parts of, you know, what sentences mean is not recoverable from the permutation. Uh, yet, despite all of that um, caveating, uh, it still seemed to do better than using the original sentences and, and computing the permutations because it's linear is pretty costless. Uh, so I think that was interesting. I think as we've built bigger and bigger models, maybe that doesn't matter, but it could. I mean, I think it would be a very interesting experiment to uh, see what happens if you pre-train models at scale on these permuted sentences and then, you know, do all of your downstream tasks also with permuted sentences. Um, like, I think that is a space, right? Like, basically, the idea here is that you're transforming the data instead of transforming the model um, mm -hmm. to deal with the dependency structure of language. Uh, and, and I think that's pretty un underexplored. And, and, you know, I think we have really not thought about kind of radically changing the data, like literally, like, you know, in, in vision, for example, we've thought about uh, data augmentation for a long time, but in language, you know, people have thought about data augmentation. It's not, it, it's de less reliably useful than in vision. Um, and further, yeah, people haven't actually thought about manipulating the inputs in this kind of way. But yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, being more from Vision, you know, it's it's been kind of interesting that a lot of the recent progress in self-supervised learning has been in large part due to just smart data augmentation. You know, you take random crops, that turns out to be super useful. Also, in reinforcement learning, you know, forget all your fancy algorithms, just take random crops of images, and that makes you have state-of-the-art results. So this does sound to me like another form of data augmentation that could be useful. And uh, also, speaking to this notion that you said of uh, transformers, you know, took the field by storm, uh, and in a sense, it was interesting because for a few years, right, uh, 2013, 14 on, word embeddings were over rage first. So you, your neural nets took the input of word embeddings, then that sort of is no longer the case. Uh, but your work uh, kind of bridges the gap here. So you have a paper interpreting pre-trained contextualized representations via reductions to static embeddings, which kind of bridges those two realms. So, um, yeah, what was the motivation there and, and what did you find? Yeah, I think there are two different kind of motivations that kind of came together there. So one, as you were saying, is, you know, we had done all of this work on trying to understand word embeddings. Um, you know, say 2013, 2014, you have Glove and Word2Vec coming out. And then 2014 to 2016, there's a lot of papers that 
you know, introduce all these methods to try to understand these embedding spaces. Um, but after the introduction of these contextualized models, we kind of threw that all away and then invented a new set of methods for trying to understand things. And that and, um, and just real quick, yeah. in case listeners are not contextualized, just means that instead of pre-computing some sort of embedding, you know, uh, you know, via some statistics, you just have a neural net do it on the fly, right? Yeah, and that's right. And and, and so your representation of a word depends on the context and inference that it'll be surrounded by, right? So like the embedding for bank in a sentence that talks about the river bank is different from the uh, embedding for bank in a sentence about the financial institution. Um, whereas with the uh, word to vec and glove, you have exactly one embedding for bank. Um, so yeah, I, I think part of the motivation was it, it just seemed, you know, it seemed reasonable that we have this new object. And so we develop new methods. That's, that's reasonable, but it also seemed like we should repurpose all of the stuff we had done before, um, or at least, uh, you know, evaluate word embeddings and contextualize uh, embeddings in the same kind of evaluations as well. So that was one motivation. The other, which is maybe a corollary of this, is um, I think people in AI don't necessarily talk about this as much, but word embeddings have been used, you know, these pre-trained embeddings for a lot of work in the social sciences and computational social science, digital humanities, these kinds of disciplines. And with the shift, and, and so the good thing is that you know, you, you can use these embeddings, word embeddings, that is, uh, on CPUs. They're not super challenging to use, um, which is great. And then when you shift to these contextualized representations, especially in like just when they were coming out, 2017, 2018, they're not usable for, for people that are, you know, maybe not uh, AI researchers. And um, one of the things was they're clearly better. And so how can we, you know, transform them sort of, you know, if you like, you know, um, you know, move them backwards into the pre previous paradigm, so so other people can use them in the, as in a kind of like plug and play fashion. Um, so those two kind of motivations came together, uh, and the, the idea was really simple. So you have a contextualized model. You just take a large collection of sentences, each of which contains some word you're interested in. Uh, for each sentence, the model will produce a representation of that word and then you just average them or, or, you know, the paper looks at all of the different ways you could maybe try to combine them uh, and average and turns out to be the best. Um, and I think there's a kind of interesting uh, point there, which is, um, and, and uh, Kawin Atayraj, who's, a, who's also a PhD student here, has a similar work on this, um, that these embedding spaces have a lot of variation in the sense that the same word when it's embedded in different contexts, has, looks totally different. Like the representation is very different, um, and there's a lot of variation. And maybe it's not desirable to have all of this variation. And maybe it's uh, you know in some sense has too much variation. And so as you do this averaging and kind of converge to the asymptotic mean um, of the representations, um, that you know, maybe like one of the observations we had is as you average over more and more sentences, the performance gets better and better, um, uh, sort of monotonically. Um, and so there might be a observation there too, for practitioners that use contextualized models that maybe you want to try to reduce the variance, um, somehow. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think it was really nice that, you know, you had this, you know, this kind of interpretability kind of 
motivation, the social science motivation. And, you know, I think it's one of those rare papers that do interpretability in a way that might affect how people actually do things in practice, right? Um, you know, the key thing was the representations you get by averaging using BERT turn out to be better than word to back and glove. Um, and, you know, it's a sort of, it would be a strange way to do things, but you could do it, right? Like anywhere you were using word to back and glove, instead you could basically pre-compute the static representation of from BERT uh, and use that instead. And that seems to do better and, and you know, is another kind of option to have in your arsenal. Yeah, yeah. That's really, I was thinking recently, you know, in this day and age of Transformers, are word embeddings just totally, you know, not useful anymore? And this point of, you know, they are lightweight, you can use them without a GPU, makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and <laughs> this idea is kind of funny because, you know, word to that glove, they are statistical techniques where you look at a bunch of occurrences and you optimize, you know, with objective and so on, which in some sense is also what you're doing here. You're looking at all these contexts and now averaging. So when you did this, um, you know, conversion, did you do any analysis of sort of their properties, like? Did they compare in some ways to what to their glove or any other like interesting findings on that front? Yeah, I think I think one of the interesting things there is so in the work we we looked at two types of things. We looked at first, I guess what we call we put under interpretability of looking at um, how these uh, representations represent word level meaning. Um, so there are some tasks in NLP for for judging that. Um, and then second, for some things related to social bias. Um, but a separate point is the another thing you have because of these contextualized models that are deep is you they produce a representation for a word for each layer in the model. So you have a, like, you can also like, you can average the representations for layer four for all of the different contexts or layer eight for all of the different contexts. And I think that was also interesting because you kind of see this trend and, and future work maybe disputes it in various ways. Um, but that for these tasks, the ones I, I was looking at with this word level meaning, it seems like the early layers are much better than the later layers. Now, as a practitioner, we always use the later layers or, or some collection of the later layers because they're certainly better for more challenging things. And you know, this happened kind of concurrently with other works in the community that suggested that, you know, word level uh, information is learned early and then, you know, broader contextual information about the sentence learned later. And this work seemed to be in line with that at the time. Um, I think that was one of the interesting findings. Another, which I was kind of hoping would be interesting, but sort of was interesting for a totally different reason, was stuff on bias. So... You know, one thing I was curious about, and I think I think we often hear this as like, so so the contextual like the large language models are biased. That's that's definitely true. Um, I think uh, maybe more pressing question is whether they're more biased than than their their predecessors and word embeddings, or like you know, are are they worse than whatever other alternative you're going to consider? Um, and it wasn't clear, right? Like. I don't think there's any obvious reason that they should be worse or better, at least so far. Um, but so, so we've tried to do that, right? We tried to, now that we have everything in the kind of word embedding frame, you can compare everything and see what's more biased and less biased. Um, 
as long as you trust your, your method for measuring bias, which is maybe a separate question. And actually what we found is like a totally different thing, which is that all of the bias measures produce entirely different results. Like they're not at all correlated. Right. So oh. I think there's a, there's a figure in, in, in the paper, which I really like, which is, as I said before, you can compute embeddings for each layer in the model. So you'll get a measure estimate of bias for each layer, right? So it's like a kind of curve. Um, and one of the curves is just monotonically increasing. The other curve is monotonically decreasing and the other one just goes straight. And, and like, you know, I can't tell you anything about the bias because I don't know which measure to trust. And so I think the result there was really more so kind of, um, you know, casting aspersions about how we do bias measurement. Um, and, and whether we can really trust the existing bias measures, because if, if they're totally uncorrelated with each other and you don't have any obvious way to identify which one is the good bias measure, um, clearly they can't all be right. So, uh, mm. you know, there's, there's something to be figured out there as well. And what were these bias measures like? Yeah. How do we yeah. compare in terms of what they do? Yeah. So, so these are all... So that was another thing is like, besides interpretability work, you know, because the community had been using word embeddings for a long time, like so, you know, five years or so before contextualized stuff, everything in the community was designed for word embeddings, including bias measurement and, and other stuff. Um, uh, so these bias measures basically look at the geometry of these word embeddings and um, compute an estimate of bias. So maybe the simplest one is, you know, you can take the, and I guess this is going to be the first paper that was released in 2016 um, from James O at Stanford and, and colleagues elsewhere, um, uh, is you can take the vector he minus she, or, or the vectors for he and she and subtract them. So that gets you another vector. And you can look at it, uh, dot product or cosine similarity with some word you're interested in. And that's, you know, maybe some reflection of the binary gender bias in the space. Um, and so th there are a bunch of measures that are kind of variations on this proposed by different authors. Uh, but yeah, they're not correlated, at least in our experiments. Well, yeah, interesting work. Uh, and then just to cap off with uh, uh, part of your you know, research journey, you then went on to do your thesis, uh, Generalized Optimal Linear Orders. So I guess, how did that come together? I assume this is building on these prior works, uh, mm -hmm. but how did you go from having a paper to having a thesis? Yeah, I think it was interesting. Um, I have a running joke with Percy, who's my advisor, that you know the last the thesis is 210 pages, and the first thing we wrote at Stanford is 211 pages. And, <laughs> uh, I, don't, I, don't, I hope that trajectory uh, doesn't continue, but... Um, at any rate, yeah. So, so the thesis is, is a development of that second work we talked about on long distance dependencies primarily. Um, and the key idea is, is really, um, and I didn't know this at the time. It was actually like when I submitted the paper on long distance dependencies, I had no idea whatsoever that there is, you know, this entire discipline called psycholinguistics. And in psycholinguistics, there's this entire history of of, of people trying to understand humans and how they process language. And specifically there's this theory called, um, uh, well, I guess it has many names, but about uh, long distance dependencies and basically that human processing 
that humans construct sentences that have short dependencies by design so that the, 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 the listener can comprehend the sentence more easily because humans mm-hmm. also, uh, you know, cognitively have difficulty processing long distance dependencies. So I had no idea that entire field existed. Uh, and then the reviewers, they're like, you cite none of this entire field. <laughs> and I was like, well, I didn't know it existed. Um, and that's uh, the reviewers can be helpful, you know? Yeah. So I, was, I think, yeah. One of my favorite reviews is like, I like, they, they just pointed to like two papers and I read it and I was like astonished. I was like, wow, they've been thinking about this for like 30 years. I had no idea. Um, uh, so, so the thesis is basically a combination of that, right? So the, the idea in the original work was basically combining ideas from NLP and algorithms to permute sentences. And then we can add in this piece of like, well, humans are already trying to de- reduce the dependency length. So how close are they to optimal even before you do the permutation? And so the thesis kind of mashes together all three of these threads, bringing you know NLP uh, optimization and and psycholinguistics all under this kind of algorithmic framing. Um, and I think it was very interesting to kind of try to bridge all of these different things and see all the different connections. Um, and yeah, it was you know each result basically had two flavors, right? It had an implication for NLP of, of is this useful, but also had an implication of well. How much more can you optimize beyond what humans are already doing? So, in a sense, how suboptimal are humans at at doing this optimization? Um, and uh, yeah, I think you can also study this for different languages and see that like some languages, you know, re- are really good at optimizing dependencies, whereas others are really bad because they're trying to do other things in how sentences are constructed. Um, and so, there's I guess a, a lot of future work there of um, basically trying to understand, you know, how humans process language and how humans produce language. Mm, yeah, it's really interesting to say it went beyond just AI and, and sort of cross disciplines, which is quite neat. So then after this thesis, of course, you went on to uh, doing your PhD at Stanford. And as you said, eventually you wound up working on these foundation models. Uh, but before that, I guess, what, how did you get there? Like your first year, you know, where did you start? And, and uh, yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. So it was interesting to start it. So I started my PhD in 2020 and it was interesting to start during COVID. Um, I guess, yeah, li- literally last week is the first time I had an in-person meeting with my advisor <laughs> uh, for the first time. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it was definitely interesting because of COVID in part. Um, so, Initially, I started working with Percy, um, and I think the good thing for me was I knew I was interested in NLP, and I had done quite a bit of research in NLP, and um, so I had a little bit of clarity on, on, I guess, the topics I kind of wanted to work on, um, but I think my interests in NLP are, are quite broad and all over the place, and so um, I think that's great in the sense I'm, I'm interested in a lot of different things, but also makes it challenging to you know hone in on a few specific things. Um, so I think Percy is especially good in that regard at you know, focusing me on, on particular things. Um, so I worked with him on some stuff on, on measuring bias early on in, in the fall. Um, and then kind of in the winter and spring, um, I worked with Dan and, and, and some other folks. Uh, but one of the things that was happening concurrently was, you know, this effort at Stanford to, you know, think about these large models and at the moment, you know, 
as, as I just told you, like as a, as a person that never wrote a single paper with a GPU, um, <laughs> uh, and, and to this point, I guess I still have yet to write a paper that requires a GPU to run the experiment. Um, uh, I, was not really interested in this at the beginning. I, I, I don't really do modeling in the first place, and I certainly don't do GPU-intensive modeling at all, um, at least so far. But I think what intrigued me is, um, first of all, Percy, I guess, is also in a similar boat. Like, historically, he's not like a deep learning aficionado, per se. Like, I think he is usually... Like, his opinions have changed slowly. And so I think the reason... His interest sort of made me reconsider whether something interesting was going on here as well. And I think what we started seeing in February, so February of 2021, is there, you know, there are a lot of AI people, NLP people, AI people, machine learning people interested in these models. But I think we also saw this kind of interest from everyone, or not everyone, but like a lot of other people at Stanford who I don't, are not like, people I prototypically expect to be associated with cutting edge AI work um, and who, you know, ha come from other disciplines and have their own research agenda, but somehow were sufficiently interested in these models to want to be involved. So I think I got on board with these efforts in February of my first year. Um, and uh, we started thinking about how to build this kind of community because we sort of stumbled into it by, you know, it's just sort of discovering that, oh, actually, there are all these different pockets of Stanford where people are already using like GPT-3 for like medicine or law or, or so on, which we had no idea about, even being NLP people. Um, uh, and yeah, it made sense in some sense to have a community for them to all discuss. And that was the sort of uh, starting point of all of this. But yeah, it was an interesting first year as a result because... Um, you know, you had COVID, then you had, or you still have COVID. Um, and you also had this kind of weird initiative that was, you know, starting up sort of right in the middle of it as well. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And this is, uh, seems like an interesting endeavor. So I guess at that point, were you transitioning to mainly being part of this large effort to sort of bring together this whole community, you know, cause usually first year, second year, you, you do research projects to publish individual papers, right. And yep. often you do it with more senior PhD students, postdocs. Mm -hmm. It seems like your experience is uh, probably quite a bit different from that. Yeah. I mean, in the beginning, well, I mean, in the beginning, it wasn't clear how big it would be or what I was, what was happening. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think like most things you don't, you don't really realize what's happening or like you don't have the bird's eye perspective at the mm -hmm. onset, right? Only afterwards you can kind of reflect and figure things out. Um, so in the beginning, I, it wasn't really an active thing. We were just like looking at, you know, who at Stanford is working in some way on these models beyond you know, they, I, obviously we know that like people in vision and language and maybe robotics are working on these things. And maybe a few people in systems are thinking about how to scale them or so on. So, so we knew those people and, and, and that was great. Um, so it was in initially just kind of a, a, you know, side kind of thing, um, of, uh, let's just build this community. And I think I was interested. Yeah. I think I was just curious, like, you know, 
I didn't really understand, first of all, why these people in other disciplines thought this was compelling enough. Like, you know, I think there's a lot of interesting things to AI researchers that are happening in AI, but I imagine not all of those are not in, or as interesting to, you know, various social scientists or uh, law professors or people in healthcare, right? I think it takes time and like, you know, stuff for, it needs to mature in AI before it becomes compelling elsewhere, right? Probably. But I wouldn't say GPT-3 is a mature technology. I would call it the exact opposite, if anything. Um, uh, yet, nonetheless, it had kind of struck them as interesting. So we just built, like, literally, we had a form that people could fill out. I, I just sent you the form, incidentally. But, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, people can just can fill, it, fill it out. And, you know, we, we like, Percy sent out an email, and, like, suddenly we had 100 people fill out the form. Um, and, you know, most of them are, you know, the usual suspects in AI, but like a lot of them are not. Um, and then we, we had all these people and we didn't really know what to do with them. Um, so we just had weekly meetings and built a Slack and, and tried to, you know, build some kind of community in that way. Uh, and so the spring quarter here, um, we, we basically just had talks, like different people gave talks about their work. Um, and if you have a hundred people, it's really easy to fill all of the talk slots. Um, so yeah, I think I've never been in a, essentially it was like a seminar and I've never been in a seminar on such a broad set of things. Like you'd have an economics talk one week and then you'd have a AI talk the next week and then like a law talk the next week. Like it was, it was kind of remarkable to see such a, you know, diverse, like disciplinary set of perspectives on, on, on all of these different things all related to the same concrete uh, set of models, right? Like, I think that's the difference from a lot of other things that might, you know, abstractly be about like all of AI or all of science, right? Like, sure, I think what's uh, unique here is that there's a kind of grounded, very concrete artifact that, that people have a shared interest in. Uh, and that was, you know, worth trying to understand. It seems, yeah, it, it's one of these things where, it just sort of, you know, snowballed, so to speak, or just grew on mm -hmm. its own organically, which is interesting. Uh, so as you started on the seminar and started getting this community, I guess, mm -hmm. why were all these people outside AI interested in this topic? Yeah, I think I think it's really just a reflection of the, the capabilities of these models in, in some sense, um, at least for the people that are trying to apply them. Um, I think they were just seeing that these models do things that are useful for, for their disciplines um, where, you know, previous AI, like, you know, things in AI were not that useful. Um, and so I think that was one, you know, type of motivation. And then I think for other people who don't, who aren't really users of, of these models, but really more so trying to understand them um, and really trying to understand their societal impact or the costs associated with them or the practices by which they're constructed. Um, I think part of it is that they were clearly important. And part of it is that so much of the space was so nascent, um, right? You know, like there's a lot of critiques of, of the data practices, which make plenty of sense, right? Like the data practices are extremely uh, underdeveloped and extremely bad in some sense. Uh, and, yeah, so I, I think there were a lot of clear research problems where these perspectives were useful and there was like enough substance for them to feel that it was useful to them to, to work on it, right? I think this has usually been my opinion that 
like in AI, we always would benefit from say social scientists. Like I think there are lots of almost any AI problem would benefit from social science expertise. I think one of the bottlenecks I have found is that usually it's not sufficiently valuable to the social scientists to work on it. It's not necessarily worth their time and, you know, aligned with their research agenda uh, for, for most people at least. Um, but this was somehow different in that regard that, you know, there was something sufficiently substantive and where they could have a clear enough impact that you know, I, I assume they thought it was you know, kind of worth their time to, to be invested in it. Interesting. So yeah, looking back into the seminar, could you just give an example or two of uh, some of these speakers from other fields and what sort of things they talked about? Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, maybe I'll start with AI and Radiate Outward. So we had, um, you know, talks on NLP or like, uh, sorry, machine learning architectures, you know, variants of the transformer, um, systems kind of work on, uh, you know, how you scale these models. Um, yeah, we were really fortunate to have Deepak Narayanan, who was a PhD student here with Matei, who recently graduated, who was at NVIDIA, um, where they trained this kind of trillion parameter model. So he had a you know, kind of really interesting uh, take on that. Um, some work on robotics uh, as well, um, thinking about self-supervision in robotics. Um, and then beyond that, I guess we had some folks in medicine who were thinking about, so at the time they were talking about some of their work on, say, um, uh, COVID-related stuff, especially, um, you know, trying to curate scientific information about COVID and, and so on. And they were interested in whether you can use these models for kind of various uh, tasks about processing scientific documents, but, you know, can you just improve uh, the behavior of those systems, especially because, you know, COVID was such a you know, pressing world problem at the moment. Um, and then in law, we had, uh, I think it was funny that uh, Dan Ho's group, who's a professor in the law school here, uh, had already trained a model, a BERT type model on law, uh, legal data, like even before this all started. Um, and so they, they were talking about that work. Um, we had uh, talk about economics. Then it was kind of a little bit higher level about just kind of the economic impacts of AI. Since then, there are some efforts to think about the economic impacts of, say, large language models or any, you know, some of these specific uh, model families. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think it was just a really interesting assortment of, of different things, yeah. Yeah, that uh, certainly sounds like it. Mm -hmm. So at what point... Um, did, I guess, this community start taking shape in the sense of, you know, you had a seminar, but then at some point, I guess you started talking about creating the center and writing this gigantic report that wound up being released. So, yeah, how did that sort of start becoming an idea and, you know, get going? Yeah, so I think I think it kind of happened in parallel. Um, so the center... I think one of the great things we've had here is uh, HAI, Stanford HAI, um, which is uh, very useful in the sense that um, it already was kind of this ecosystem of connected, I guess, faculty uh, that all uh, you know, were thinking about humans and AI, but also come from all of these disciplines. So I think CRFM is, is, uh, is a center under HAI. Um, and kind of builds off of the infrastructure provided by HAI. Um, 
So th- it was in place. And I think um, as we were building Steam and you know, seeing how many people were interested, um, Percy uh, was talking to Feifei and John H. Mendy, who are, who are the you know directors of HAI. Um, and it sort of, at you know, some point became clear that we should have a center as a kind of formal unit uh, at the university for, for organizing this as a, you know, enduring structure. Um, and so, so that's why we built the center. Um, I think it's pretty important to organize this, especially interdisciplinary, um, a community in a sustained way, uh, at least at Stanford, that's how it's usually done is, you know, if you look at all of the different centers at Stanford, they all organize people from different disciplines together. Um, and, you know, because you don't have like a department, for example, that already uh, organizes um, things together for you. So that was the motivation for the center um, and how it came to be. In terms of the report, I guess, um, you know, maybe I'll give the more blunt answer, which is, you know, we, we had all of these paper people, sorry, and we didn't really know what to do. Um, and one thing that was clear was we had a lot of, a lot of expertise and uh, a lot of this expertise is on topics that have been written about um, in relation to these models, but somehow we needed, or like it would be good to kind of write down our full set of thoughts on all of these different fronts and survey sort of all of the different things that was already going on and make some projections about how the landscape would change going forward. Um, and so that is really the, the essence of the report is the report is this massive 200 page document, uh, which is very cumbersome to read, uh, admittedly. Um, but the design was, you know, such that it was at least somewhat readable in the sense that each section is pretty self-contained and each section, you know, identifies a unique topic. Uh, and, and brings together this kind of collection of people who work on that topic um, as their kind of primary research focus uh, and, and basically writes about uh, what is the status quo and what is the current research about these models and then where is it going and what things might change, what is the potential, what are the limitations, uh, all of these kinds of things. Um, and yeah, I think, I think it was a... I certainly... Yeah, I've never been part of a similar writing effort. Um, uh, I'm not necessarily sure that a similar effort has ever been done, or maybe, yeah, certainly I think no one on the paper had ever been on a paper of that many authors. Um, so, so yeah, I think, yeah, I suspect I will never write a paper that requires as much coordination <laughs> as that. Uh, yeah, do, you, do you know roughly how many offers it is? Yeah, so there's like 114 authors and okay, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, I guess it's in some sense uh, making use of this community which you build CRFM to, I guess, as an initial effort at least, just survey where we are and point a little bit as to like, well, okay, here's where we are, here's what you should think about, and areas what we could work on that are you know question marks, stuff like that. So, as you said, this is a massive calibration effort. Uh, it is you know, not as crazy as some people think. Obviously, various people wrote various sections. I would imagine only a few <laughs> read over the whole thing, probably including you. 
Um, so yeah, uh, how did it go? Like how, how long did it take? How much of a headache was this? <laughs> yeah. So I think we started maybe in March and, and, you know, released it in August. So I think it was actually in some sense fast per se. Um, uh, I, yeah, we certainly asked a bunch of people how long they thought it would take and, and the estimates were not, I guess, five months. They were much longer than that. Um, uh, but yeah, so, so I think it was clear. So we first outlined, like, what are the sections, uh, where do we have expertise? I think that's a key point is, you know, th there's even more things that could be written about, but maybe we don't have expertise on all of them. Right. For example, you could talk about the applications to a lot of established technologies like search or something, but maybe that's not necessarily, or like speech technologies, which you know, there are, we're seeing models being developed for speech, but all of the people we had, we didn't have the right expertise to write those sections. So, so we were, I mean, it's already 26 sections. So, uh, we were pretty intentional about what that set of sections was. That was the first piece. Um, then we need to figure out, you know, what is each section writing and need to calibrate the, the authors of each section to have the same kinds of goals. And, and I think that was a thing where, yeah, you can, you know, you know, pose some initial, you know, prompt, but you also need to, after the fact, like con uh, continuously read all the sections and figure out what's going on and then, you know, make sure they have a, you know, or at least somewhat of the same type. Um, so that was a ongoing process. And then to actually write the sections, indeed, as you were saying, uh, it was this sort of initially decentralized effort where each section is kind of being written in parallel by, you know, roughly disjoint sets of authors. Um, and there's a lead for each section, or there's actually two leads, a second, uh, student lead and the faculty lead who are kind of responsible for driving each section. And I think we're really uh, very critical for, for this to be well-organized. Um, and that gives you the kind of, you know, skeleton of the paper. Um, and one of the key points is, you know, we wanted to do something that's more than the sum of our parts. And so you need to kind of showcase all of these interdisciplinary connections, right? That, that's you know, really part of the point of doing this jointly rather than, you know, writing 26 five-page papers. Um, uh, uh, and, and to do that, you know, I think it's tricky, right? Like even pairwise, you know, you have, what, 26 choose two different pairs. Uh, that's a big number. Um, uh but we, we were pretty careful. I think Percy and I were kind of the like people looking at the paper broadly and pointing out connections. And then obviously individual authors are aware that, oh, you know, I'm talking about healthcare, but there are some privacy concerns. There are some ethical concerns. Let me talk to the ethics folks, the privacy folks. Uh, and then that gives you the, you know, you know actual uh, fuller version of the paper with all of these connections added in. And then we did some, you know, final passes and, and you know, so on to, to make it reasonable and then wrote the introduction as the kind of last thing, um, trying to, you know, weave everything together, but also point out some kind of meta level themes that are really about, um, you know, societally, what is, what is going on with these models, what needs to change, what needs to stay the same, all, all of these kinds of higher level kind of themes. Um, and, and yeah, that, that gets you the paper. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I guess the final result, you said uh, it is massive, right? And there are 
more than 100 offers, but uh, we won't go into it. There's just too much to talk about. But just to give a, a brief idea to the listeners, you know, it's, um, yeah, really an overview. It has, uh, I guess, four-ish major sections. So introduction, well, five, introduction, capabilities, applications, technology, and society. And within each of those, there's subsections, so capabilities, you have language, vision, etc. So actually, it's pretty readable if you just, you know, don't try to read all of it. You go to various sections. It almost looks like a textbook in some sense, where the second page is this uh, table of contents. So, yeah, certainly an interesting uh, thing to produce with such a massive uh, collection of collaborators. Uh, mm-hmm. But... In some sense, uniquely possible because you had this community for sure. Exactly, exactly. So, I guess, what were some of the big challenges in making this happen? Obviously, the collaboration aspect, mm-hmm. but writing the individual subsections, as you said, people had expertise. So, for that, mm-hmm. I would imagine that would be pretty natural. Uh, what came down to be sort of some of the main things to think about when finalizing things or, or while working on it? Yeah, I think I think one of the things is, you know, we have some people who who every day work with these models and have a really clear, crisp understanding of, of some dimension of these models, right? You know, the systems people very clearly understand, like, these are the systems challenges for this class of models. Not everyone has that level of familiarity, right? Like, especially many of our colleagues outside of AI, um, you know, maybe have written a paper about these models, probably not even, but like, have interacted with them and if lightly. Uh, and so I think one of the challenges was how can we work with them and, you know, uh, you know, make sure that those sections too are compelling and, and, you know, sharp in how they discuss these models, uh, but still, you know, leverage all of their expertise and make clear like why this is not a bunch of computer scientists writing a paper, but, you know, the, the economist is leading the economic section, the, Healthcare people are leading the healthcare section, um, right? So I think that was an interesting challenge. And I think, you know, if you look at all of the sections that are not, I guess you wouldn't call part of AI, I think you'll see a shared structure that they have people from that domain and people from AI jointly writing the section. Um, and I think that was one of the key things to, to make this happen and, and, and for those sections to be compelling. Um, and then it was quite challenging at times. Um, I think another thing is, you know, just different people have different expectations. So I think there's this calibration aspect. Uh, there's just, you know, the process of reviewing the paper is also its own saga. Um, uh, you know, normally, you know, what we write our papers, you know, five days before the NeurIPS deadline, and, you know, <laughs> maybe get someone to review it and, you know, great, uh, internally. And then some you know, external reviewer or like, you know, actual conference reviewers review it. But, you know, this needed sort of its own process. So we had each person review two other sections um, or I think four other sections. So it was great because you have like 100 people. So you get a lot of reviewers for a lot of things. And then we had this, you know, uh, amazing collection of external folks who also agreed uh, to, to, you know, at length provide lots of reviews, which is, which is fantastic of them. But, um, yeah, I think, I think the... Yeah, there, there was, it was kind of one of those things where there isn't like any singular big challenge that like looks insurmountable. It was just like there were a lot of things and each of them required their own specific 
you know, resolution of, of how to move forward. Um, and, uh, we were able to figure it out. So, so that was great. Uh, I think the introduct, like as, you know, as, yeah, we, we understood that people would not read the paper at length. Uh, usually we understood that most people will read the abstract and the introduction and, you know, our words there are probably the most important ones in the paper. Uh, and so that also took its own, uh, you know, amount of time, right. And the name itself also took a lot of time. Uh, I don't think we anticipated the name being as controversial as it was. Um, but internally actually as context, right. We were using this, uh, name universal model, um, which, uh, seemed reasonable for some reasons, but, uh, there were, there are many, well, you know, articulated flaws, um, and so Ria Kaluri, who's, who's a, another PhD student here, sort of, you know, started this kind of uh, effort of like, well, let's actually think about the name and, and, and figure out what the name should be. And so we, you know, another good thing of having 100 people is you have a uh, 100 different voices about what the name should be. I, I'm not sure if that's, I mean, it's good in some ways. It's also hard to manage, but um, <laughs> uh, so to, to have some structure, we basically proposed, you know, I think like 50 names and then had like a tournament where we, you know, basically compared names with pairs and narrowed it down. And I you guess know, foundation model was the one that triumphed in, in that tournament. But, um, yeah, so as I think, I think the paper has all of these kind of little mini microcosm stories that are all kind of interesting about different parts of it. Um, uh, mm -hmm. but yeah, I think that's maybe a good synopsis of it. Yeah, yeah, sounds like it. Very, very different from <laughs> very usual <laughs> challenges you face in research, but that's right, I guess that's in some right. sense, you know, it's interesting to be part of such an effort. Mm -hmm. Do you yeah. have a favorite uh, name in this tournament that you were hoping for? I think, I think foundation model was one of them. I Another one we considered, I, I, I think there were reasons we, we didn't pick it as well, but um, is infra model. Uh, so Omar Katab, who's an, another PhD student here, uh, suggested it. Um, so the name kind of refers to like infra as in, infra, like infra means under as an in infrastructure, which is the under structure. Mm. Um, and I think it's... It's nice. Maybe it's a bit too systemsy, and, and the semantics are a little bit hard to parse. It's more abstract, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think that had a kind of nice um, semantics as well. Uh, but indeed, was harder to parse. I think. Yeah, I think one of the challenges was you need, or, or because of the, com the community we had, uh, for a name to do well, it needed to have pretty broad appeal to to people who are AI practitioners and for whom like the name pre-trained model maybe is already satisfactory. Um, uh, but also to people who, who are not AI practitioners and for whom pre-trained model has no meaningful semantics when encountered um, or pre-trained, I should say has, has no meaningful semantics uh, mm -hmm. about the significance of these models. And, and uh, I think one of the points and, and why foundation kind of, triumphed over synonyms of foundation like base or platform or any other synonyms um, was it kind of invoked the idea that it needs to be built carefully and like it's very important um, and it's important to get right. And I think that is maybe a high level theme of the paper is I think a lot of the practices at the moment 
are are, are nascent and um, you know are what they are. But I think what we would want is for the practices to be much more judicious and thoughtful in, in how we construct these models. And you know, like the entire society section sort of speaks to that as well. Like there are clear and, and tremendous costs of producing these models, and they should be justifiable. Um, and we should have a clear articulation of, of all the ways in which they're justified and all, all the costs are, and so there's, you know, environmental costs and there's, you know, various types of harms they cause and, and, and these kinds of things and various potential for misuse. Um, so yeah, trying to understand all of that, I think kind of is how we got to foundation model is, you know, first the, the, the descriptively we're building on top of these models, so that's what foundation does, and uh, unlike or maybe less like other synonyms of foundation, you know, foundation communicates that you know you have to think about how you build it. It's not just uh, you can't just build it however you like; otherwise, the you know subsequent substructure will just fall over. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I think that was the you know, roughly how we got there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think you had, you you disclosed some of the alternatives uh, at some point and you had some things that are maybe technically more precise, like pluripotent model or poly model, but those certainly don't convey that same kind of subtext that foundation does. So it makes sense. Now, yeah, so that, uh, that came out, right, and made a big splash uh, in the AI world. And uh, as you said, uh, you know, initially, especially, you know, a lot of the conversations were about this report and the center and not so much about what's inside it, but about the idea of it and the size of it and so on. So it was an interesting time. And as you said, there was some controversy, especially about the name um, people, I don't know, thought it was meant to say like foundation of AI or something like that. Um, so then, um, following that you and Percy and I think someone else wrote a bit of a response to responses, right? Reflections on foundation models, which was on the HAI blog, also on the gradient. Um, yeah. So, uh, on that, maybe can you go for that and summarize sort of one of the main things you felt you needed to clarify and respond to, uh, and highlight, uh, in writing that blog post? Yeah, I think, I think the, you know, there are a lot of different critiques that, you know, identify different parts of what is going on. Um, I think some of the critiques, as, as you pointed out, were about, you know, what effectively does foundation modify, um, or like, what does it mean to be a foundation or foundational? And if, if you attach it to AI as opposed to a specific model, you know, you get a more grandiose kind of interpretation than, than we wanted. Um, and so I think, I think really there we were trying to clarify you know, scope where, where it is we were. Um, I think related to that is the report is about these models. It is not a report about all of AI. And so it doesn't cover many topics in AI, which are, are important, but these models are sort of orthogonal to or, or don't really have any associated contribution to. Um, right. So, so I think there were very fair concerns, you know, do we think like causality doesn't matter or symbolic methods don't matter or probabilistic methods or probabilistic programs don't matter. I, I think 
you know, our, our main response is, no, of course, we think they do matter. And in fact, many of us indeed work on those things besides this uh, report. And, you know, by I, I think we, we did have an oversight there that we didn't explicitly sort of state that in the report that, you know, there are a lot of other areas of AI and we're not saying that AI should revolve around these models, just that they're quite important within the landscape of AI. Um, so I think that's one class of, of uh, critiques. Um, I think another in is, is maybe more structural critiques of things like the center and HAI and whether, and because these models are so resource intensive and so, uh, you know, related to industry, uh, whether, whether, you know, by bringing attention to them, we're effectively lionizing them and, and sort of, you know, making, uh, you know, solidifying their, their importance or, or something to that effect. Um, Meg Mitchell at, at the, at the workshop we hosted had a very nice, uh, um, I think, you know, uh, variation on, on the name foundation model about like uh, solidifying the uh, inequity in the foundation or like cementing the foundations of inequity or, or something like that was her, where it's her talk. And it was a you know, very perceptive critique of, of a lot of this space. Uh, and Meredith Whitaker has, has also been doing um, sort of similar critiques as well. Uh, I think there are a couple of points there. I think some of these are, are fair structural critiques of HAI and CRFM um, you know, I think it is true that in, especially at the faculty level that we're not, uh, racially diverse and, and there you know, is a lot of progress needed on that front. Um, I'm not necessarily sure at the faculty level, that's something we can easily change, uh, but it'll, or it'll take time to change, uh, perhaps, but, um, besides that, uh, I think one of the points is that because a lot of the critique, especially the stochastic parrots paper on, on large language models is, is on large language models by changing the name, do we effectively deflect, uh, the critique? Um, and I think in a sense, I, I guess, but I think we needed an, like, even if we use an existing term, the term we would use is pre-trained models. It, it would never have been large language models because the scope was not language specific. Um, and so it's not uh, super clear to me um, how different it would be if we, if we hadn't changed the name or not, because we wouldn't have used that particular term. Uh, but more significantly, I think the actual content of that critique is very valid and uh, is echoed in the report in many parts. We cite that paper, we have sections that sort of extend the environmental critique of the, of these models. Um, and I think are quite incisive in critiquing these models, right? Uh, you know, for example, I think one of the standard arguments in the space is, um, you know, companies might have carbon offsets to offset the carbon emissions required to train these models. But in fact, uh, carbon offsets do not, or is pretty disputed whether they work, uh, whether they have second order impacts on the environment that are actually bad by reducing biodiversity. Um, and so we talk about these things and, and try to make that clear. Or I think a separate class of arguments is, oh, well, there's really big costs. So 
that's true. I think a response to that is, well, the costs get amortized if you use the model a lot. And, and, and so, you know, maybe the cost is negligible. Um, and I, I think in, in the paper, we talk about both of these uh, and, you know, trying to clarify, like, you know, indeed the costs do get amortized, but at what level are they justifiable? And, and like, you know, just because they get amortized doesn't mean there's like an infinitely large model that should be trained. Um, uh, unless it, you know, use sufficient times to really justify it, uh, which probably is unlikely. So I think that was a point that kind of, I felt got lost in a lot of this is I think the paper in reality is, is maybe the most complete critique of these models that exists at the moment. Um, uh, but you know, by, I guess, suggesting we should study them, I guess overall we're suggesting that perhaps they, they have more benefits than costs in some loose sense, um, or at least that they have potential. Uh, but I don't think that means we're, we're ignorant of, uh, you know, all of the costs. And I don't think we have any, I think we're very willing to be very critical about these models. And mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of people in the center who have that particular sentiment in particular. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting to me. It's a bit of a sense is people because the report is so big, you know. Even reading the introduction, it seems like the report would likely capture the overall sentiment of the field as a whole. Uh, and right now, it's very bullish. I think at least for most people, a lot of people are not necessarily too worried about the ethical implications or not thinking very deeply. So I would assume mm -hmm. I think a lot of criticism came from a standpoint not just about the report, but about the state of the field and the assumption that the report is in some sense kind of reflective and is in, in, um, in, yeah, in step of it. So the blog post, I think, is, is a nice point of emphasis on some things that were overlooked. Uh, and you right. have a few key kind of things you highlight, such as that, you know, uh, it's, it's meant to support diverse research that... Mm -hmm. The current trajectory of foundation models is not inevitable. Instead, right. you're rather saying this is things we should do and so on. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a nice kind of shorter, I think, summarization of a philosophy that maybe got rounded out in initial discussion. I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think it's, uh, you know, one of the goals we had, maybe not the first goal, but a goal we did have is, you know, I think the space is very charged and polarized and people have as you were saying, bullish opinions about the topic. And I think there are very reasonable explanations for that. Um, but I think we are trying to move the discourse forward and, you know, have these kind of uh, conversations about the things that are especially controversial. And I think that's been the, the philosophy we've had is like, I think internally there have been, especially in writing the paper, there were various uh, debates about how we should do things and, uh, even moving forward, I think there are a lot of things where the community is fragmented in its perspective. Uh, and I think a goal we, we should have is, is, is to, you know, find opportunities to figure out how, how to, you know, communicate with each other and, and discuss these things. So the, the workshop was exactly in, in this vein of, of trying to, you know, have a concrete venue for people to discuss and intentionally, you know, have people from, you know, different viewpoints on, on the same topic, uh, mm -hmm. present, uh, to, to discuss it. Um, and yeah, I, I think we'll see how, how the report gets perceived in, in due time. Um, but 
Yeah, I, I think it is useful to keep that maybe broader context in mind. Yeah, it's, it's certainly a starting point, right? Right. And going beyond the report, right, that happened, it was three months ago, and I asked you <laughs> quite a few questions uh, earlier this week about this, because I think it's also something that has been less talked about is uh, the center itself, CRFM. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's it still exists, it's still ongoing. So mm-hmm. what are the main goals of it, would you say, as a yeah organization? Yeah, I think... So the center exists uh, to, to coordinate these kind of efforts internally at Stanford um, uh, across departments uh, and disciplines. But uh, specifically, I think, you know, you know, maybe there's the broad goal of trying to research and study and build these models and understand them um, at a you know, more useful level in some sense. I think one class of efforts is to... Uh, build code to train these models in a reproducible way, in a way that is uh, more accessible to academics and other people, maybe outside of a few tech companies. Um, Because I think a lot of the techniques and tricks that are required to train these models are not well documented or well known. And and that was certainly our experience in trying to train these models. Um, So that's one class of efforts. And, And so there's the Mistral code base um, which has uh, been led by uh, uh, Laurel Orr and Sid Carmchetti here. And that, I think, is a great effort in that front. Um, so that's maybe one, one thing. I think a follow-up on that is we, by building that infrastructure internally, we also want to use it, um, though, of course, it'll be open-sourced. Uh, and, and the way we're going to use it internally in particular is to help efforts for people in other domains to train models um, who maybe don't have or have some ML or deep learning expertise, but probably don't have or don't want to learn all of the engineering tricks and and, and nuances and so on. So we have some efforts already to train models in law and music and medicine and robotics, and I'm sure we'll have more in due time. Um, And I think that is going to be another interesting thing is really seeing how the space expands, because I think the space at the moment is very centric on language. And as an NLP researcher, that's that's cool. But um, uh, yeah, I don't think the space is going to remain that way. Usually the analogy I make is, you know, in, we sometimes associate deep learning with vision as maybe the like place where it got popularized. Uh, but in reality, now we understand deep learning is a much broader thing that is not you know, specific to vision alone. And in the same sense, I, I would anticipate, and, and the report also suggests it, um, that we're going to see this broadening and, and we're going to be part of that broadening by, by doing some of the initial efforts in these other domains. Um, so I think that's one class of efforts around uh, training models. Also, I guess there's a lot of core ML stuff, of like testing different architectures and objectives and systems, optimizations, and these kinds of things. Um, I think the second thrust of the center is other efforts to involve, you know, these kind of interdisciplinary collaborations of people, maybe more so in the social sciences with AI people thinking about the societal impact of these models, um, ethics, misuse, uh, these kinds of economic impact, uh, these kinds of things. So I think that will lead or has already led to a bunch of, you know, smaller or like you know, more reasonably scoped projects um, on each of these different fronts. And that's growing. Um, 
I think that's quite exciting. And uh, I look forward to seeing what that will uh, yield. Um, and then third, I think one of the things we sort of sort of sort of demonstrated in, in writing the white paper is there is this unique potential that I don't think is standard in academia to do these very large projects um, if we want to. Right, the white paper is is a is, is an extreme. It has all the people in the center at the time involved in it. Uh, I don't uh, anticipate we'll do another such thing anytime soon. But I could anticipate that we'll have things that you know maybe involve like 20, 30, 40 people in the center uh, working on a you know, much larger project. Um, and so we are starting kind of figuring out what the candidates for that kind of thing would be. Um, because that would be more traditional research as opposed to the white paper, which is primarily writing or like a survey and a, maybe some projections for the future. Um, I think it becomes trickier uh, to actually collaborate on concrete research and um, uh, coordinate that. But I think the center is at least the infrastructure you'd need to do that. Um, uh, because I don't think it's you know, tenable to just arbitrarily have you know, 40 people come together even at one university, let alone many universities or institutions, um, uh, without there being some kind of, you know, thing that gives uh, organization and structure and these kinds of things. So, um, yeah, I think we're, we're starting the, you know, process of trying to identify the first one. I think there's some interest around evaluation because it touches on a lot of different things. Um, uh, because you can effectively evaluate for anything. That's you know, one way to involve a lot of people. Um, maybe there will be some stuff on data as well, because I think data, again, is another thing that sort of touches all of the other um, areas. But um, yeah, we'll, we'll see what that you know, looks like. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think it's interesting to point out that uh, the center is in some sense a child of human AI Institute at Stanford, which maybe, maybe people aren't as aware of. And it's, so it shares a lot of that same philosophy. It, lo- it seems to me in terms of cross disciplinary and, um, yeah, really getting collaboration and, uh, on the note of <laughs> large project it made me think of, you know, looking at the, uh, GPT free paper, there's like 30 offers, right. And every large foundation model since has been from a big company pretty much or you know a collective so in that sense a lot of people have been wondering about the role of academia and it seems to me that in some sense this is a way to think about it as well it needs larger efforts and maybe this is a good way to enable that i think that's right i think in addition you know the thing maybe that's most saliently different well, I guess maybe there are two different things that are saliently different, right? Like one is the compute uh, that academia has access to versus various companies. But uh, the second beyond that is, or like the resources uh, in general, like we also don't have a bunch of engineers. Um, uh, we have a bunch of PhD students, let's say. But um, uh, besides that, we, you know, have a very different incentive and organizational structure, right? I think at a company, if you have, you, you have the ability for a top-down kind of direction that, uh, you know, people on these teams X, Y, and Z will all work on this project um, and therefore will be able to successfully, you know, build GPT-3. Um, 
in academia, we don't have the same, especially in CS and AI, where I think a lot of the research is student-driven, um, you don't have the same mechanism uh, necessarily. And so you need to coordinate these kind of bottom-up research agendas and find things that are at the intersection of a lot of research agendas. And as, as you know, you know, the intersection of lots of things becomes increasingly small. Um, and so I think that's the, the tricky part is that we have a very different structure and, and we have to work you know, with that structure you know, because ultimately we want the research we do to be you know, beneficial for people's dissertations or PhDs or, or you know, postdocs or, or these kinds of things uh, because they're the people involved. And, and that's tricky, you know, because, you know, writing a paper with 40 authors maybe is, maybe is less good for, for the people uh, who are not the first author, let's say, uh, in, you know, in the current structure of academia. Uh, but that, you know, simultaneously you might need 40 people. And so how, you know, how, how do you, how do you make the incentives align and find the right things that are interesting to everyone and, and worth the, you know, investment from everyone because everyone has, you know, their own separate projects that they can also do. Um, so I think, I think that is the thing we're trying to figure out and is, is maybe quite a bit trickier in academia than, than in other places for, for these large collaborations, right? Like we're not like the physical sciences, for example, or like, you know, because this originates in AI, the traditions are not the same as saying the physical sciences where, you know, people might be expected to work on larger projects and, you know, the, a single PI might drive the research agenda rather than students uh, in some ways. So I think that is a, maybe a key challenge as well. Yeah, yeah. I can definitely see that structurally the way AI research is done. In academia, you have labs. Within labs, you have professors and students. And sometimes you get some cooperation between labs, but it's like two labs, rarely three labs. So I can definitely see this as kind of trying to go beyond that if needed. Well, we've touched a lot and, and I think had a good discussion on the report and the center. And uh, now to zoom back in, <laughs> I guess, uh, what is uh, going on for you? You know, I, I assume you're interested in working on foundation models, but what aspect do you find interesting and, and are you hoping to really uh, hone in on? Yeah. I think I think the the nice thing about about doing the report is you had this very bird's eye perspective on on um, uh, or at least the role I was playing was you know, gave me this kind of bird's eye vantage point uh, and I think it was useful in the sense that I think right now the things I'm focusing on are are kind of related to the sections of the report I wrote uh, or let that was the lead on which is um, evaluation and fairness or or equity. Um, and I think there's, there's a few different interesting things there about how you evaluate these models, um, how you evaluate the, the foundation model as opposed to downstream models, things like that. Um, and then the kind of tension there that, you know, usually in some sense you care about the downstream behavior, but you probably want to up evaluate things upstream uh, so you can anticipate how, how it will behave downstream. Um, and, and so there's a, there's a, tricky kind of tension there to be understood. Um, related to that is that we, in general, do not evaluate data, but these models are kind of the byproduct of data more than anything else. Um, and 
how, what does it mean to evaluate data? So I've, I've done some past work on this, but, uh, you know, thinking about that, thinking about how you select data, right? I think that's one of the interesting things in this paradigm that differs from, say, traditional supervised learning, where, you know, usually, you know, you're, you're building a QA model on squad, you have the squad training data. I mean, I guess you could not use all of it, but you probably will use all of it to train your model. Um, here, momentarily putting aside the questions of, of what data is acceptable to use or not, uh, you have more data than you can reasonably pre-train on. Um, and so there is a, there's a clear process there of like, how do you select data? And I don't think we have any real principles for how to select data yet, or we really understand what, how data selection influences the learned model. And so I think that is another thing I've been thinking about. Um, so that's kind of the evaluation space. So a really broadening how we think about evaluation um, maybe is, is the general theme. And then on the equity side, I think one of the things we've just started with Katie Creel, who's a, who's a postdoc uh, here in, at HAI, and uh, Ananya Kumar, who's a PhD student uh, in, in CS, um, is looking at what are calling homogenization. Um, Specifically, there's this maybe potential that if you build all of your different models using the same foundation model or foundation models that are pretty similar, uh, maybe that means the behavior of all of these downstream models becomes increasingly similar. And, you know, that in itself may not be concerning or it's not clear if that's a priori bad, but in some instances, it could be very bad, right? Like, uh, you know, if all of these models are performing poorly for a certain set of, of users or types of data, you know, that's clearly a problem. Even if like at the individual level, you know, one model happens to do worse for some collection of data, well, you know, that could be bad, but maybe the scale, the, like in scale in terms of the number of applications suddenly makes things much worse, right? If syst systemically you're doing worse for, for this, you know, collection of users uh, across all of, you know, like say NLP, like every language technology, you know, hypothetically, uh, every language technology is built by fine-tuning BERT. Um, you know, the resultant models you get will be different for each application, but you could understand that because they all share BERT in common, um, you know, they might behave the same way and they might perform poorly for the same collections of users and, and that can be quite bad. Um, so that is some of the stuff on the kind of fairness and equity front uh, that we've been thinking about. Got it. Yes. <laughs> Plenty to look into some pretty big topics, uh, certainly and increasingly important, especially on the data side. It seems like there's a lot to look into there. Indeed. Well, yeah, it was really good to hear on, on your, you know, research journey up to now. And just to finish up as we usually do, uh, you know, let's, hear a little bit about you outside of AI um, and mainly just like, what are you into besides research? Uh, what are your hobbies? What yeah. are your interests? That sort of thing. So maybe I'll just momentarily start with something that's still academic in nature and then I'll talk about things as you want that are not. Okay. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> but uh, just because I, I felt like uh, pushing it uh, is, um, so I do uh, quite a bit of teaching and we're, we're creating a course on large language models for the winter. And so that's a interesting effort. Um, I've never been part of, so I've TA'd before, but I've never been part of creating a new course. So that's been a kind of interesting challenge. So that's with uh, Tatsu, Chris Ray, and Percy on 
in the winter at Stanford. Um, mm-hmm. So, so there's some te- teaching stuff that's been of interest to me. Besides that, um, I, I play sports, um, a variety of different sports with some of the other PhD students. Um, so mainly, I guess, basketball, soccer, and volleyball these days. Um, so that's great. Um, besides that, um, I read from, from time to time. I'm probably less avid reader than I have been in the past, but um yeah i since moving to california i've become a connoisseur of various fruits um oh. a, lot of, a lot of interesting yeah so, so i grew up on the east coast and, and lived throughout my I went to cornell which has no fruit i mean i guess actually cornell has lots of agriculture but like it's cold and so the yeah. range of, of, of you know, fruits there is it's pretty conventional like they have apples and, and things like that but um uh, yeah, since moving here, um, yeah, California has, has, you know, great climate for growing things. And so, uh, all kinds of strange new fruits to try, um, has been maybe the latest hobby. I think I, I, I didn't know this for a while, but Stanford also grows a lot of fruits on campus. Like they have this, uh, yeah, they have a website called like trees.stanford.edu, which I guess is indication <laughs> that um, something might be going on there but yeah they have uh lots of different trees that you know bear lots of different fruit um and and yeah i i think i'll one day you know wander around campus and, and collect some of them but yeah i was walking outside of my uh, apartment and stumbled upon a group of oranges and was like huh so oh that's yeah. fun yeah that's cool all righty. Well, with that, we're going to go ahead and close out. Uh, thanks again for uh, going with us for your research and, and foundation models. It was really fun to talk to you, Rishi. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fantastic. Yeah. And once again, this is the Gradient podcast. Check out our associated magazine over at gradient.pub where we have that blog post on foundation models. And you can go to the gradient.substack to subscribe to our articles and newsletter and this podcast. As usual, if you like the podcast, you can support us by sharing it, subscribing, and giving us reviews, and that would really help. Thank you for listening, and be sure to tune in to our future episodes.